Let's hear the word of the Lord together. A reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 65, starting with verse 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never, never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will live long and enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat the straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. reading from the second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 3, starting with verse 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, you gave us, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 21, starting with verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. 
Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed, even by parents, brothers, and sisters, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me but not a hair on your head will perish. Stand firm, and you will win life. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord. Well, we have come through this season of ordinary time, which I don't know about you, but to me, as a pastor, priest who gets here every week and uh, prepares for worship, ordinary time feels like it lasts forever. Um, and so this season has now ended. I love this season. It's a wonderful time of recognizing that God is present in our everyday lives. God is moving and working even when we do not always dramatically experience God. And it's in these weeks now, the next few weeks, where we begin to sense a shift. We have a longing, a retraining of the imagination for something new. Something's changing. We're headed towards Advent. Advent is not only the anticipation of Christ's first coming, but an anticipation of Christ's second coming. This putting right of the world, which is certainly good news. Only God can heal us. Only God can restore us. But Advent is also a word of judgment. Fleming Rutledge says, Advent begins in the dark begins in our recognizing that not all is right with the world, that we need a coming of Christ. We need the second coming in our world. Sometimes the physician heals with ointment, but it is often through the scalpel. Today, our readings point us in the direction of God's new world. And then also, as we look towards God's new world, what are we to do in the meantime? One of the radical distinctions of the Christian faith is the source of our hope. Christians do not just hold on to a vague notion that someday things will work themselves out. That's not our hope. We have a hope that is proven and is sure, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is the ultimate sign that God loves his world and his people and has not given up on his world or his people. So in light of the resurrection, the world that we live in now is a different place because resurrection has happened. We now live in the kind of world where death is not the end of the story. It doesn't have the final word. And in a world like this, all things are possible. Psychologists tell us that most of our fears in life are rooted in one great fear, the fear of death. So there are certainly other things that we fear. We fear emptiness, meaninglessness. We fear an ending to our lives without any purpose. But resurrection says that death is not the end. It doesn't have the final word. And all of those things are rooted in that fear of death. 
So therefore, we have nothing to fear. Throughout the Bible, we hear hints of resurrection, hints of God's new world, that it's coming, that God's future is breaking into the present. We see that this world is beautiful. This world that we live in now is beautiful and wonderful and also broken and not all that it is created to be. There are rumors throughout the scriptures of the God who will not give up on his world, that death is not the end. In fact, the Old Testament reading says, God says, I am about to create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. And in response to this promise, the command to the people is rejoice. I'm doing this thing, so rejoice. And the rejoicing is to begin now. And it's to last forever. Not only are God's people to rejoice, it says the people themselves will actually be a joy. God's people will be a joy. Joy will be who they are. It says, I will delight in my people. And of course, it is true that God always delights in us. God always delights in his people and the people he has made. But that had not been the way that Israel had experienced it when they were in exile. They didn't feel like they were the delight of God. Of course, they always were, but they didn't experience it that way or feel that way. And today, because of our circumstances, God's people often struggle to see who we really are, that we are a delight to God. We struggle to experience God's true delight in us. The prophet says there'll be no more weeping or distress. So in a world where resurrection is possible, where God runs the show, things are happening which we previously deemed impossible. So verse 20 says, in God's new world, there will be no more tragedies of any kind. The prophecy specifically mentions those those who die at a young age. Many of us have had friends and family members who died too young. God says this will not be the reality in God's new world. Someone who dies at a hundred will be considered a child. Says they shall build houses and inhabit them and shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. In other words, in God's new world, if you build a house, you will live there. If you plant a garden, you will eat the fruit. You're not going to build for someone else or plant for someone else. Well, to us, we read that and we go, that seems kind of logical, right? Like that's kind of how you know things are supposed to be. If I plant a garden, who else is going to eat my food? But the children of Israel had been defined by their identity as slaves and foreigners. When they build, they build for others. When they plant, others eat the harvest. But in God's new world, all of that's going to be sorted out. Exile is a difficult concept for many of us to grasp in 21st century America, but this reminds us of the more recent evils of slavery, sharecropping. We still live in a world today of unfair labor practices where wages just don't match the cost of living oftentimes. The most extreme examples of God's peace in this passage seem to be the wolf and the lamb feeding together. Why? Because wolves are predators and lambs are prey. That's how things work. Predators and prey represent the circle of life, right? Somehow, even that will not be the case in God's new world. The lion shall eat straw with the ox, predator and prey together. In other words, the lion will not eat other animals. But the serpent, it says, its food shall be dust. The serpent is the image for the deceiver. If we go back to Genesis 3. Okay, so what does this mean? Does this mean we're all going to be vegetarians in God's new world? 
Even the animals? Well, maybe. But it's saying that the circle of life, cue the Lion King music, right? <laughs> the circle of life will be suspended, will be remade in such a way that predator and prey will not be a thing. What does that have to do for us today? Well, I think it has great implications in a lot of ways, but it also has implications for human relationships. No longer will we look at one another and see what we can get out of the other person, objectify another person, or figure out how we can get even with another person or get revenge from them. No, we will see our relationships as God intends them, as shalom-filled, as peaceful relationships. If we read this through the lens of Jesus, we see that new creation has been inaugurated in him. Jesus embodied the new world of Isaiah 65. In fact, it sounds a lot like what Jesus describes when he says, turn the other cheek, forgive 70 times 7. Of course, we don't see this world in its fullness today, but as Christians, as the church, we get to live this way now. From our pro- the prophet today, we hear that the old world does not have the final say. Things that we deem impossible in this world are possible because of resurrection. And we hear today that no matter what you've been told before, you are a delight to God. While the world runs today on violence and objectification, there is a better way. And tragedy does not have the final word. This has all kinds of implications for us, but we might ask ourselves, how can we be makers of peace? When someone cuts me off in traffic, when I have a conflict at work, or even when it comes to global issues, can we actively live peace in the midst of a chaotic world? And the answer is only by grace. In our epistle reading, it deals with what we do between the time of the resurrection, our sure hope, and then also the world that we see in fullness. So what do we do in the meantime? The communities to which Paul was writing believed that Jesus would return any day. Some of you may have grown up in a church like that, where we're thinking Jesus is coming back this weekend, so we are, we are ready to go. Of course, that may always be the case, right? But it's difficult to establish patterns and rhythms of life if you constantly believe Jesus is going to return by the end of the week, so we don't prepare as much for the future. That's what's going on in the church in Thessalonica. So the early church at this time lived literally as a family. They were dependent on each other, not just for warm feelings and feeling of community and emotional support, but for actual work, for actual financial support. In Thessalonica, some of the early churches um, and Christians, the early Christians owned their own houses and shops and businesses, but they were committed to each other as each one has need. This is why Paul elsewhere calls the church a family, because he knows how a family works. They're in this together. And it seems like this community in Thessalonica had an idleness that set in. So some of the Christians had depended on the work of others, and they were choosing not to contribute themselves. In fact, this seems to be an ongoing issue for this church, because elsewhere, Paul had told the new converts that they are to refrain from idleness. He said that in 1 Thessalonians. And so it seems like he repeated it a couple times in really nice ways. (laughs) And here he says it a third time in a really serious and extensive way. Because Paul knows that in order for the community to function, this is what has to happen. We have to all be in this together. Now, of course, Paul's not referring to those within the church who were unable to secure employment 
or those who had physical limitations. No. It seems like there were some people who showed up to the church gatherings here and there, but they never actually settled in to do a job of work. They relied on the goodwill of the other Christians. How does Paul deal with this? Harshly. Sometimes when we look at these early letters as Christians in the 21st century, we go, whoa, Paul, too much, too much. Uh, I've never been a pastor who ever emphasized in any stretch of the imagination what's called church discipline often. I think 99.9% of the time that that's ever used or employed are ways that are heavy-handed and controlling and manipulative. But there are rare times where it's necessary in a church often when it threatens the rest of the community. The rest of the community is actually under threat or you have somebody who is um, predator or who has, has broken trust in a very, very, very serious way. But in Paul's case, this fragile community needs to hold together because they have the threat of the empire and then some are leaving all the work for everyone else. So this is addressing a particular problem in the community. Okay, well, if we read that and we go, okay, this was a letter from Paul to this random church. What does this have to do with us? Churches today don't share our resources in the same way that they did in the first century. We don't all eat all of our meals together. We don't live in the same houses together. Well, let's remember why the people were resistant to work. The first reason was eschatological. It's a big fancy word for they're looking for the end of things. They're waiting for Jesus to come back anytime. If you think Jesus will return any time, their, their focus is on preaching and prayer, but not on work that we do with our hands or physical labor. But the second reason is sociological. In the Greco-Roman world, there was a disdain for physical labor. People thought physical labor was often kind of a lower thing and something you should avoid at all costs. So there were these kind of relationships that the poor would build with the rich, where the poor would do nice things for the rich and then they would financially support them and sustain them and that kind of thing in order to avoid manual labor or work. Well, Paul gives himself as an example. He says he and his co-workers worked night and day, laboring and toiling. And this wasn't because they didn't have a right to financial support from the community. It would make sense for them to receive such support. But they refused it because they didn't want to become a burden. So he says, we work really hard. (laughs) You know, we do this and we don't expect anything out of it. Just follow our example. And verse 11, I love it. It probably stood out to you when Jessica was reading it, but it describes the situation aptly. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. (laughs) When they're not working, what's happening is these in the community who are lazy are spending their time meddling in other people's affairs and complaining. Elsewhere, Paul commands to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands. The challenge here is in the last verse. Brothers and sisters, do not be weary in doing what is right. So we may recuse ourselves of laziness. We may go, hey, I'm not lazy like you know these folks. We may think that there are other people that are lazy. This verse is for them. But the question really is that last verse. Are we becoming weary in doing good? it is possible to fall into the very trap that we accuse others of falling into. It is so easy in our culture to allow the cares and concerns of the world to keep us from a regular practice of our faith and our serving. But we need each other. We can't afford for any of us to become lax. 
N.T. Wright says that like a group of dancers in formation, if one person relaxes, the whole group is out of step. Now, hear this, and one of the interesting things about preaching the lectionary, these calendar of readings, is that um, this is just the verse we're supposed to preach on today, or the message we're supposed to preach. So don't hear any message from your pastor today on this, um, in a sense of that I had an agenda picking this verse. It just kind of came up. But N.T. Wright says that, in, that like a group of dancers in formation, if one person relaxes, the whole group is out of step. What this communicates is we're all in this together. We need each other. The church is a community that pulls each other's weight together. And what that means is, of course, there are times where we rest from work. The Sabbath principle is assumed. And there are times in life where we engage church volunteering and community events in ways that are more intense and stronger than other times in our lives. There are legitimate times where we are in need. In fact, that's the whole point. If we're not engaged in the times when we can be engaged, we're not able to be there for those who are struggling. The challenge is for us not to become weary in doing good, to hold out hope even when things are difficult. And finally, a look at our gospel text today. Jesus is walking with his disciples. Some of them are raving about the magnificence of Herod's temple. And then in a shocking twist, so they're looking around, they're talking about how beautiful Herod's temple is. And then in a shocking twist, Jesus says, one day this beautiful temple will be torn down. Quickly, the disciples ask, okay, when's this going to happen and how will we know it's happening? In a further description, Jesus uses this apocalyptic language. He talks about a time of great turmoil where nation will rise against nation, earthquakes, famine, plagues, all of these things. And if we look at the first century, it was a time of great political shakeup throughout the Roman Empire. Like I think every morning I make coffee in this thing called a mocha pot. Maybe you've seen it before. And it's really a pressure cooker for coffee. So you put hot water in the bottom and then you put the grounds up at the top and then the pressure builds and builds and builds and then coffee comes out the top. And so I'm always kind of waiting for when that's going to come out. Okay, I'm going to go do something and I'm going to go check and see if the coffee's ready. Kind of go back and forth and back and forth. Um, well, I think about the time in the Roman Empire like that. Like there's pressure that's happening. It's building and something big is about to happen. So the Roman Empire is oppressing the Jewish people and all of the people it's colonized at that time. The Jewish people are planning a revolt. There are certain groups that are trying to rise up against the Roman Empire. There's so much that's going on. It's a pressure cooker and something is about to blow. Well, Jesus sees all of this and he says to his disciples, a time is coming where Rome is going to tear this temple down. And we can see from history that it all played out exactly how Jesus predicted In 70 AD, a few decades after Jesus spoke these words, the temple, the center of Jewish identity, was torn down, and the city of Jerusalem was ransacked. This was the equivalent of an apocalypse for the Jewish people. It was the center of everything for them, the center of their faith and politics and economics and forgiveness and relationship with God, and it was all torn down. And yet at that time, at the time of Jesus, the temple had become a place of political posturing. It had become a place where they mixed their um, nationalist and political identities with their worship of God. There was a syncretism, a political posturing, a separation. Well, Jesus is telling his disciples that when the temple's torn down, in the midst of all this destruction and chaos, the world will see what really lasts, what really matters. 
Because the reality is their hope and our hope is not in the temple. In Jesus, God is doing a new thing. Now, in the midst of such danger and turmoil, those who follow Jesus, he says, at that time, will be arrested and persecuted. Christians will become sources of blame. People will remember Jesus as a troublemaker who took Israel away from true holiness and purity. And so he says to his disciples, you will be betrayed and you will be hated. And he's telling them that, telling them that people will reject them at this time of great un- upheaval and they need to be prepared for that. In fact, your families may split apart. It may get to the point where people are blaming you for everything because you follow Jesus. But he says this, not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. Well, that's a bit confusing because we do see that in the coming decades, many of Jesus' disciples were killed for their faith. They were martyrs. So why is Jesus saying, not a hair on your head will perish? Well, he's using this hair on your head language to remind them death is not the end. God will never give up on them. He is saying that death will no longer be a thing to fear. He's pointing to resurrection. Your final enemy, your final source of fear, death, that's not the end. You don't have to be afraid of that. For us, I think this is a reminder that anything we put our trust in besides God will let us down. Even good things. Money will let us down. If that's our final source and trust, it'll let us down. Even if we get it, we will not be satisfied. We live in a city where fame is so important. So many are trying to make their big break. Fame will let us down. A few years ago, there was this really interesting video going around illustrating all the best-selling records and digital downloads from 1979 to today. I don't know if you ever saw it. And as you watch it, it's this kind of illustrated video where you see the artists just change over time. And it's a progression, and you see some of them rising and some of them dropping in their record sales over and over again, quarter by quarter, raced up and down the charts. And it shocked me, it shouldn't have, but it shocked me how quickly Artists would move from number one to not even on the charts anymore. And they would come and go. And it shows us that fame is fleeting. Your career or vocational identity will let you down if you put your whole trust in it. If your whole life is based on the fact that you're a good salesperson, well, what happens if you have a bad quarter? Your politics will let you down. You're going to find holes in your arguments as time goes on. You're going to Find out that conservatism or progressivism or libertarianism or nationalism will not save the world. This is also the reminder that God has us no matter what difficulty may befall us. And of course, there are things that will last into God's new world. Those things that will not topple or ever be torn down. And Paul tells us it's faith, hope, and love that will last into God's new world. By way of the Sermon on the Mount, we can extend that to every act of Jesus-looking love in the world. Every time we cling to him in faith, every time we trust him as our hope. Because Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the place where heaven and earth meet. And everything else will pass away. But a new world is coming and now has broken through. Today, I hope we hear the good news of resurrection. Of a new world 
and that it shapes our imagination. When we read passages like the prophet in Isaiah of a new world where there's no more tragedy and um, lion will lie down with the ox, each straw with the ox, and the wolf will lie down with the lamb, that that actually changes our imagination. We look at this world that is so discouraging and we go, actually, there's more to this. There's hope to this than what we can see. And as we move towards Advent, we see the destruction of our world and we long for restoration even as we do not yet see it in fullness. The new world is where there is no more tragedy, no more predation, no more hurdles to everyday living and flourishing. And that will ultimately be seen in the age to come. But as Christians, the good news is we can live the age to come now. We are a sign of that future world today. Because God promises it, it's as good as done. Is this not, after all, what we celebrate every Sunday? In God's new world, God will delight in his people. They have always been his delight, but in the new world, they will know it fully. In the meantime, we can respond not by being idle or lazy, not just to focus on prayer and preaching, but putting our hands to physical work, knowing that it matters. This is serious business because the church is the family. And we express love in this way. We're also reminded that nothing we cling to in this life, nothing that's made up of the stuff of this world will ultimately last. Temples, fame, money, influence, and power will all be destroyed. Now, when this happens, it will feel like earthquakes and war. It will feel like the end of things. When we cling on to something and then we see it fall away, it feels so destructive. And in such a world, clinging on to Jesus will always be difficult. It will always face resistance. But we have the hope of resurrection. The reality is that even as we face great loss in this life, pain and sickness, those who are connected to Jesus don't need to fear. We don't need to fear death because resurrection is real. New creation is real. And our hope is sure. Amen.